Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Today we are studying the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. This is affectionately referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It covers three whole chapters in the book of Matthew. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. And we're going to slow down. We're going to take one chapter a week, so we're just going to cover five today. And as we read five today, I want you to look at two things. All right? I want you to understand two big contrasts. There's two kind of main themes I want to jump out at you this morning. The first is as we're reading and the setting um, that this sermon is taking place in, I want you to start to connect the dots and the parallels between what's happening here in Matthew and what happened at the foot of Mount Sinai with the people of Israel and Moses. Because as I said last week, Matthew, he's the one who wrote this book, he wrote this gospel primarily to a Jewish audience. So who he was talking to were Greek-speaking Jews who had converted from Judaism into Christianity, um, and they're living in a setting where they're getting lots of persecution because there's other Jewish folks who have, they don't believe anything about Jesus, they don't believe he is the Son of God, and they're getting persecuted in the form of, um, well, we're, not gonna, uh, we're not gonna shop at your business, um, we're gonna kind of put you on the outs as far as um, uh, making sure that you're taken care of. And so a lot of these families, what they started struggling with because they chose Jesus was their livelihoods kind of shut down and they um, started I- getting an increase in persecution and, and poverty. And so Matthew wrote this book to kind of give them comfort and remind them about who Jesus wa- was and to connect these ideas and these themes from Israel into what Jesus is doing. Because as we've talked before, everything Jesus did points back to the entirety of the Old Testament because everything that happened in the Old Testament was shouting forward to Jesus. And that's the only way that things are gonna make sense. If you read the Old Testament with the lens of Christ, everything starts making sense. And then when you read the New Testament and Christ's words, you start understanding, oh, this stuff in the Old Testament, now that makes sense. Nothing in the Old Testament stood on its own. Everything was essentially just a big old sign planted in the ground saying, do you understand how this works? Okay, good. Now take this and multiply it times 10,000 because it's actually pointing to Jesus. That's the entirety of what the Old Testament was about. So as we're reading this morning, I want you to make the connections in your mind that you had this exodus from Egypt in the book of Exodus. You've got this Moses character. You've got a mountain. You've got the people sitting at the foot of the mountain. You've got the law. And now in Matthew chapter five, you've got, well, Matthew did a good job at the first four chapters of showing us how Jesus has come up out of Egypt. We've got Jesus as this uh, new greater Moses. We've got now a new mountain. We've got now a new people. It's not just a nation. It's anybody who wants to make, uh, make Christ their Lord. Uh, and we've got a new law, essentially. No, not law in the sense that it was the law of the Ten Commandments. Law in, in, in the sense that this is the only, what you're about to read, is the only proper way to respond to a God who gave his son to die for you. How do I respond to that cross? Well, there's only one way, and it's to obey what Jesus says is the proper response to his sacrifice. So this is not the law, this is the only reaction to that. You follow? All right, with that in mind, let's get started. We're gonna go to chapter five. And as you're turning there, um, we're gonna put it up on the screen so you can follow along if you'd like to read it on the screen. If you wanna mark in your Bibles, that's certainly okay. Um, But I wanna offer this disclaimer. Essentially, what Jesus is saying in what we're about to read is that um, the, when you become a citizen of 
of the kingdom. When you repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, after repentance, there's a whole lot of stuff that takes place. And that whole lot of stuff is essentially us allowing the spirit of God to change everything that we do. So that from that point forward, from the point where we repent and turn from our old ways to God, we are now putting God first in everything. And that means our motives, our actions, our business practices, our language, our thought life, our priorities. And, and this, is the, this is the disclaimer. Um, it is very, it's gonna be very sensitive what we read today, okay? I promise that as we read through this, one, if not more, if not all of these things will touch some nerve in your heart today. And it will be uncomfortable and you will not like it, but you will also kind of like it. <laughs> if you don't kind of like it, then you might, act, you might not actually love Jesus the way that you think you do. Because there's this weird relationship where you come to him and he speaks the truth and he's got this loving look and you're like, yeah, you're right, I'm horrible. And he's like, yes, you are, you are. And you're like, what are we gonna do about this? And he just says, I'm gonna love you and I'm gonna change you. Come a little bit closer, just take a step, come on. Come here. And then you take a step and you're like, oh man, but now nah, I don't feel comfortable and I got all these things around. He's like, no, no, look at me. Stop looking at that stuff. Don't walk backwards, look at me. You're like, this is uncomfortable, this is painful. I don't like this. This goes against my choices and what I want. He's like, yeah, I know, come on, keep coming. That's what this is. It's gonna be painful, you're not gonna like it, but you also are gonna kinda like it. So now that you understand that I didn't structure this sermon in some way. This is funny, when you kind of do this as a vocation, there's always this kind of thought in the back of the people's minds who are like, did he say that because of a conversation we had this week? <laughs> I feel like he's saying that at me, I promise. I really, truly have done my best over all the years of being a pastor to never incorporate some private conversation or some issue or thing that we talked about into a sermon. This platform is not for that, but I can't, make allowances for what the Holy Spirit does in you. <laughs> All right, that's not on me, that's on him. So as we're going through this and you kind of feel that prick and you're like, ah, all right. Just know that wasn't me, I didn't prepare this for you. I promise, your, your, <laughs> your face is not in my mind as I'm preparing this message. So what I want for us today is to let these words pierce us and lift us out of this thing that we call Christianity that's really, really just lukewarm obedience. Cool? All right, enough talk. I wanna read five, one through 12. We're gonna read the first section, the Beatitudes, um, and then we're gonna break down each Beatitude, and I'm gonna kinda give you a reflection of what I feel like Jesus is getting at, but I just wanna let you know that what I say is not the end-all, be-all. There are many, many facets to the diamond that is the Beatitudes, and as you turn it, it's gonna sparkle brand new brilliance for you, but I wanna give some starting point so that when you hear, blessed are those who mourn, what does that mean? Well, it probably means this as a starting point. Get on your face and ask God what else it means for you. Cool? Matthew chapter five, verse one, it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, blessed, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they, they're gonna see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. I wanna read that one more time. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you 
when others revile you and persecute you and that are all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Not because of what you've been posting on your account, but because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Pause. Now this section is affectionately referred to as the Beatitudes. The reason why is because that word uh, Beatitude is Latin or comes from a Latin word that essentially would mean blessed is he who. So that's where we get that, you, the Beatitudes. Uh, it comes from this Latin word that essentially says blessed are those who. And then who is, uh, what happens is the next um, series of verses. But that word bless is important for us to understand because I think it's gonna give us a context for what Jesus is saying when he says blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean blessed? Well blessed, that word in Greek, that word blessed, is a representation of the inner joy of living a life that is right with God. Blessed, is not you having more money in your bank account than you did yesterday. Blessed is not getting your way in an argument. Blessed is not people thinking highly of you. Blessed is the inner joy that comes from being right with God. That's blessed. And that's hard to measure because when we're talking about inner joy, it's not something I can put words to. It's the kind of thing that you really only can wrap your hands around when you're experiencing it for yourself. You, you people know what I'm talking about? That inner joy. Some of you are like, I haven't felt that in a long time. We're, hopefully we're gonna fix that today. Because if there's a hallmark of the people of God, the fact that they're being blessed, the hallmark is the fact that they are the people who are just walking around with this inner joy that is connected to the fact that they are right with God. Not right with the world, not right with all of the things in their life that are settled and organized and in their place. No, those things often for the people of God, they're a mess. We are not more organized or better off, physically speaking, than most of the rest of the world. But there is a connection to an inner joy that makes that stuff not important anyway. So that blessed, that inner joy, how do you get it? Where does it come from? How does this stuff manifest in my life? How do I see this way of walking? Well, he starts laying the foundations for this in the first one when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of God. What does poor in spirit mean? We know blessed is this inner joy. So essentially what he's saying, if we're putting all this together, is that full of inner joy is the person who is needy for God. I'll put it a different way. Full of inner joy is the person who is spiritually bankrupt without Jesus. Poor in spirit means that that inner self has got nothing without him. It means you're that desperate beggar pounding on the doors of heaven saying, Jesus, if you don't send that manna that my soul needs, which is you, I'm gonna starve to death because I'm broke spiritually. I got nothing to prop myself up. And Jesus says, when you get to that place, those folks, they're gonna inherit the kingdom of God. What do you get when you've got nothing else? you get the entirety of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. 
I said, these are, this is like, um, you know, like when you take your kids uh, Halloween trick-or-treating and then you come home and the good parent dumps it out on the uh, table to check the candy to make sure there's no razor blades in it or anything. But what you're really doing is you're pulling the best off <laughs> because there's a tithe unto you. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and so the best is those, those, uh, those um, Milky Way darks the mini size, the small ones, because we've got to watch our weight so we can't have a full size one, but the little ones are okay. That's what we're doing, okay? These are bite size, these are mini. This is not the entirety of the Beatitudes. You can read books this thick on just these 10, 11 verses. But what I wanna do is I wanna, I wanna get your mind spinning on where you need to start chasing this idea because this is the reflection of who we're supposed to be. Okay? We are not the people that we have been told or put on the news. This is who we are. We're not even the people that you think you should be. This is who we are. Amen? So we're people who are supposed to be spiritually bankrupt, people who are desperately needy for God, not people who walk into a church service saying, I'm doing you a favor by showing up. It's a good thing I'm here, huh? It's a good thing I'm stroking a check because all this wouldn't be possible. You should go find another church. Because what we're doing here as a reflection of this is people who are so desperate saying, God, I, 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 don't, I don't know what I would do if it wasn't for what you did for me. I'm broke when it comes to spiritual maturity. So the next part of that, what's another reflection of that? Those who mourn. The people of God are the kind of people who are familiar with mourning. And the reason why is because those who mourn are going to be comforted. So let's read that with replacing blessed with this idea of being full of inner joy. Full of inner joy is the person who is familiar with tears. Full of inner joy is the person who weeps over brokenness. Who doesn't sweep it under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. But the people of God as a whole are people who when they see brokenness and injustice, they mourn even though it's not against them. Are you, are you tracking with me? Because this is the posture we're told by Jesus' own mouth that we're supposed to have. And the reason why we're supposed to walk this way, the reason why the people of God are supposed to be familiar with tears and weeping and mourning is because when we get to that place, we're promised that we're gonna be comforted by God. Now here's the beauty. That word comforted is the word parakletos, which is the same word that is used for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. So what we're essentially told by Jesus is that when his people are familiar with weeping and mourning, what they get when they live that kind of life is more of God. You want more of God? Then get on your knees and start remembering what it feels like to cry and weep and mourn because that's what Jesus says you get when you do that. More of him. Now, uh, uh, let's have a theological, I don't know if it's theologically correct we can actually have more of God. Didn't we get all that we needed when we were saved? Well, technically, yes, but there's this idea of capacity Right? If I have a full glass of milk, I can't pour more, more milk into it, right? But if I've got a gallon jug that's full to the top, which container actually holds more? The gallon jug. So what we're not asking for is, God, give me more than the other person. What we're really praying is, God, I want you to increase my capacity because I want to be able to walk with the fullness and the understanding of more of you. There are parts of my life where I think I'm full, but I'm really only full of a thimble size amount of you. I want to be full of like five-gallon buckets from Lowe's. And then when that's done, let's, let's fill up a dunk truck full of you because all of those are full, but there are varying capacities when it comes to the understanding of the fullness of God, and I, I'm not satisfied with where we are. Pour yourself out on me. That's what he's saying comes when you start getting familiar with mourning and weeping and crying. Let's move on. Blessed are the meek, 
Blessed are the meek because they're going to inherit the earth. Jesus is saying, blessed is the one. Full of inner joy is the one. What is meek? Meek is having a humble view of yourself. Meek is living a lifestyle where you have nothing to prove. So full of inner joy is the person who makes a decision to start living their life with a humble view of themselves. That they are not the most important, interesting, or fascinating person in the room. That their humble view of themselves, and then they walk into the room, their, their only perspective is that I am here to serve. I am not here to be listened to. How can I help? Not who can listen to me. Blessed are the folks who are meek, not trying to live with anything to prove because those folks are going to inherit the earth. What does that mean? It means your inheritance is now and also later in eternity. You're going to inherit the entire earth. Everything that you see around you suddenly has a different value when everything doesn't flow back to you. When you have a humble view of yourself, when you're not trying to prove things anymore to other people, all of a sudden there's not a need to take out another mortgage to buy a piece of property that you don't really need anyway to impress people that don't really like you in the first place. Suddenly, I've, in a way, inherited the, the entire earth without having to pay payments on it. Because now I've humbled myself and that stuff is no longer important to me. You follow? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Why is, are, are those folks so full of inner joy when they hunger and thirst for righteousness? Because we're told that they're gonna be satisfied. So full of inner joy is the one who loves good and cultivates it in others. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is this idea where, as practical as we can talk about it, it's the idea that, man, you just love good. I love good stuff. I hate bad stuff. Who defines good and bad? He does. And my value system has been changed because of what he says. So I love that stuff. I hate this stuff. And I want to cultivate that in others. So I'm not going to lend myself and my affections to be pulled to that because I know that some of my friends who think highly of me are going to want to do what I do. And so I don't want to get them caught up in this rat race of wrong value systems by, by getting invested in this thing that's no good for me and is no good for them either. You follow? And when that happens, when I start getting hungry for, for righteousness, I'm told that I'm going to be satisfied in ways that this world can't satisfy. Here's the thing about uh, worldly wealth. It never satisfies. You ask the richest person in the world, they could always make more money. And it's funny, like, it, 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 at whatever income level you're at right now, you're thinking to yourself, man, if I could just, like, if I could just hit that next milestone that I've set up in my mind, then, like, I wouldn't have to worry about things. But, but once you hit that, suddenly there's a whole other set of worries, and you need more money to take care of those extra worries. That's how it works. There's never a level at which you're satisfied when you hunger and thirst for this world because there's always a new phone that came out, there's always some new technologies, there's always a faster computer, there's always somebody that can do things better. It never satisfied, but we're told with the kingdom of God, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're gonna be satisfied. Huh, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed and full of joy is the person who lets other people off the hook and chooses to walk in forgiveness. Why is that? Because as you walk in forgiveness, you become more aware of the forgiveness that you received in Jesus.
I remember a conversation that Jesus had with Peter. They're having this, this conversation. Jesus says, hey, I got a question for you guys. Um, um, uh, um, uh, we got one guy over here who was forgiven a little debt, and this guy over here was forgiven a big debt. Uh, who do you think is more grateful? And Peter's like, well, I suppose the guy who was forgiven the larger debt. And Jesus essentially says, yeah, you're right. Now, does that mean that we can't truly be grateful for God unless we've done a bunch of terrible things in our life and we've had a big debt forgiven? No. What it means is all of us have done some lot, lots and lots of terrible things in our life, but we are only aware of some of them. And so for those of us who are aware of all of the magnitude of things that Jesus has forgiven us of, we are grateful in a way that the person who has been forgiven but is not doing the diligent work to actually understand what they've been forgiven from. And so when it comes to this idea of, of, of showing mercy, the more we do it, the more we realize how much mercy has been shown to us and it cultivates this inner joy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who are the pure in heart? They're the people who are, are essentially just trying to live one life and live it out in the open. What you see is what you get. I don't have two sides to me, I've only got one side. The person I am here is the same person that I, that I am at home, it's the same person that I am at work. You're not gonna get a different me based off of my attitude on a certain day, you're not gonna get a different me based off of a certain social situation that I'm in. What you see is what you get, that is pure in heart and you are promised that there is an inner joy that comes when you live like that and the promise is that as you do, you're gonna see God. And the reason why is because you start seeing God everywhere when you stop trying to manage your own self-images. When you stop trying to show up to an event and remember who you portrayed yourself as to these specific people, and I gotta keep up this image for these folks and this image for these folks, when you stop all of that, guess what you start being, becoming more aware of? God, everywhere because you're not thinking of yourself anymore. It's what we talked about last week. You don't have to think lower of yourself, you just have to think of yourself less. Stop thinking of yourself. Stop thinking of your images. Stop trying to portray things that you're not, and as you do, you have more mental capacity for being able to just see God at work in every situation that you walk in. Blessed are the persecuted. Oh, I skipped peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Full of joy is the person who doesn't take sides but points everybody to Jesus, who refuse to accept that this one side of the story is always the true side of the story. Because there is this side, and there is this side, and then there is God's side. And blessed are the folks who stop trying to live their life finding how one side or the other is all 100% true and spends their life trying to see things from God's perspective because when you do, you're gonna be called the sons of God. What happens when the folks start trying to walk in peace? Well, then you start looking like your dad in heaven because you're reflecting his value system. Blessed are the persecuted. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are at the center of the clash between two value systems. That is what persecution is. Persecution is when a value system clashes with another value system. That clash, what happens as a result of those two clashes is persecution. And so if you are experiencing persecution, when you see that at work, rejoice. Because it is proof that what you are walking is contrary to what is being sold by this world and corporations. When that, when that happens, man, praise God, you are blessed. The reason why you're blessed is because this happened to the prophets who came before you. You're in good company. And here's the beauty of it. Persecution, the reward, the kingdom of God. Being brokenness and, and, and um, uh, spiritually poor, verse three, what's your reward? The kingdom of heaven. 
I've read through a lot of commentaries uh, over the last week or so preparing for this. And one of the common themes that they, that they kind of outline is this idea that you can look at the Beatitudes almost like a stepladder. It's, a, it's like a, it's a rising of maturity. You start completely spiritually mature and then you start learning how to mourn and then meekness and then hunger for thirst and righteousness and then being pure in heart and peacemakers. And as you ascend, you eventually get to this place where you look nothing like the rest of this world and everywhere you go, all there is is persecution because your value system is different than the world's and all it does is create conflict. Guess what? The inheritance that you get at the top of the ladder is the same inheritance you get at the bottom of the ladder, just the kingdom of God. You get more Jesus. So rejoice, because you're in good company. Now, these beatitudes are a reflection of the values that you find in God's kingdom. This is what we're supposed to be walking as. Now let's go to verse 13, because Jesus continues to build on this idea. Now we have these, these new reflections, these, these new postures, this new inner joy we're striving towards, these new um, uh, series of ladders, if you want, that, that kind of lifts us up and identifies clearly where we are on the path of spiritual maturity. And then you go to verse 13. He says, you, followers of me, who are reflecting the Beatitudes that I just said, you are the salt of the earth. Living like this makes you the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And, and I'll give you another one. You are the light of the world. You're not just salt, you're like light. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So he's saying when your life reflects these things, these, these beatitudes, you start looking different. How, okay, and then we would say like, Jesus, okay, what, what kind of different? If I start doing this, when you say, when you say different, what does that really mean? He's like, I'll give you an example. It's kind of like salt. You know how like when you're making a soup, and it's salted perfectly, and the first taste, you're just like, yes, soup. You guys never had any Lyle's soup, so you know what I'm talking about. But when you taste, you're like, this is perfectly seasoned. This is, this is soup, this is delicious. And then you take that soup, and you just pour that cup of soup into a much larger pot of stock that is not seasoned, and then you taste that, and like, well, that is, not soup. <laughs> What's happened? That perfectly seasoned soup that had the right amount of salt has now been diluted by a larger pot of just stock of nothingness and it's lost its flavor. What good is it for? That is what Jesus is saying. The whole reason why you're walking in these things is so that in the world you taste different. But if you're spending all of your time allowing your soul and your personality be diluted by the things of this world and all you say is I wanna look more like the world, I wanna chase the things that the world has, then what good, what are you even doing? What is the point of you even being called a Christian? What is the point of you even following Jesus if you're not doing it to make a difference in this world and to love Christ and treasure him above all other things? What's the point? If you're gonna do that, then don't even go to church. Don't even bother pretending to walk the walk. Uh, and, and okay, uh, I think I understand Jesus. You got any more up your sleeve? Yeah, kind of like light. You're like, when you live like this, you're like light illuminating the darkness. People who are meek have a way of exposing people who are prideful. Sometimes you don't realize how prideful people are until they get in the same room as somebody who's just genuinely meek and humble and doesn't think highly of themselves. When you get the two of them in the room, you're just like, wow, I didn't realize how much this guy likes talking about himself until I hung around with a guy who never talks about himself. Light has a way of illuminating the darkness. And when it does, it shows us things that we didn't know were there. 
It shows us we didn't even know that this thing shouldn't be here. When people who are pure in heart show up to a party, have this, this way of exposing deception around them. Because people who are pure in heart, they have no ulterior motives. When they start talking about stuff in a room with people who have ulterior motives and have agendas, it becomes really queer, queer, excuse me. It becomes really clear, really quickly, the person who has an agenda and the person who doesn't. Even if the person who has an agenda seems genuine, when they get around people who are actually genuine, all of a sudden they start looking who they, like who they are. They, they start looking like, oh, this person really wasn't my friend. They didn't care anything about me. They were only hanging out with me because it served their own interest. And I didn't realize that until I started hanging out with these people who were hanging out with me genuinely because they just like me and they're not trying to get something from me. You follow? Light has a way of showing the darkness, showing where things are hidden in the dark because it, it, it pushes back darkness. And so Jesus says when you live with this posture, when you live with the Beatitudes in mind, when you're this kind of blessed, you make a difference in the world just by being who you are, where you are, wherever I've placed you. You illuminate the darkness. You show things that have been hidden for years. And it's not you, it's me working through you. But by obeying me, just showing up illuminates things in the eyes of people that have been blinded by the deception of others for many years. So let's go to verse 17. He's going to give us some more case studies to kind of help us understand how this works out. But before he does, he wants to kind of clarify what he assumes his audience is going to bring up as a question. Um, uh, it sounds to me like you're abolishing the law of Moses. Is that what you're doing, Jesus? Because you're now giving us a whole other thing. I kind of get how like we're up on a mountain just like Moses was. You're teaching us kind of like he did. And you're telling us things that are kind of like not in our original law. So are you like are, are you, is that void now? Do we follow these other things? Jesus answers that before he goes into some descriptions. This is verse 17. Now, now, guys, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I'm not here to get rid of the stuff you heard of before. I, I have not come to abolish them. In fact, I've come to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, unless, uh, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not even enter the kingdom of heaven. Now what is he talking about? Because it sounds confusing. It sounds like he's saying, do we have to follow the law? Because like, I'm really unfamiliar with all the festivals. Do I need to start like building a tent in my backyard for the Feast of Booths? Because I'm really behind on this. No, he's clarifying the whole purpose of why Moses gave the law. The law was a diagnostic tool. It was not a physician. The purpose of the law, the purpose of what Moses gave the people was to help the people understand how deeply broken and rebellious they were. And in turn, would also show the rest of the world us, how deeply broken and far off from God we are. Because when you just look at the Ten Commandments, not even talking about the hundreds of other ones, just the ten, man, we're checking those things off pretty quickly. And what Jesus says is I'm not coming to abolish it, I'm actually coming to fulfill it on your behalf. The purpose of the law was to diagnose the people and show them that their brokenness and sin, and then to cultivate inside them a desire to need the physician, 
I'm so broken, I'll never fulfill all these things. I wish there was somebody who would do it on my behalf because I'm never gonna do this. I'll never succeed. And Jesus steps in and says, I am fulfilling this on your behalf. So what Jesus says is, if any of you try to remove the weight from the law, all you're doing is risking somebody who later reads it getting a false diagnosis on how bad they actually are. You follow? If as a teacher I come in and say, well, the law of Moses, I don't really need it. Not that important. Then in turn, you look at that and say, well, he says it's not really important. I'm looking through those things. Uh, maybe I knocked off some of them. Maybe I didn't, but it's not important. So I guess, how bad could I really be? What do I need saving from if I'm not that bad of a guy? So Jesus says, don't look at this as something you need to start striking through and making less important. In fact, let's make it as important as it always is. It is the only CT scan that we have, spiritually speaking, to let you know how deep the cancer of sin runs in your bones. So don't do away with it. Let it do its work and show you how broken you are and then turn to the great physician for his fulfillment of it on your behalf. Now, what is the only proper response once you've walked in repentance and accepted the healing that the great physician gives you? What is the only proper way to live? What we're told in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So naturally, we have these questions. All right, I'm starting to see what you're doing here. I get it, Jesus. I see it. But I do have a few questions. Jesus says, yeah, I know you got questions. Because there is a big chasm between where you're living and where I'm talking. Because when I talk heavenly language, all you're hearing is earthly language, and you're already starting to micromanage how you can kind of move a couple pieces on the chessboard and start fulfilling these things over here. So let me get real serious about what I'm talking about. And let me, let me give you some case studies on a, spe- a few specific things um, that you've heard and what I actually mean when I'm saying this stuff. Are you ready? Because this, this is going to get... Um, It's going to get wild. Go to verse 21. Now what's interesting, and I want you to watch this as he's going through. Up until this point, anytime a prophet would teach on the teachings of God, they would always say, the Lord says unto you. The Lord says to you. The Lord declares. But what Jesus does here is this is a series of, of case studies that essentially says, look, you've heard it said by other folks, but I say this. In this passage, he is boldly declaring that he has the authority because he's God to tell you that you can ignore what you've heard before because it wasn't spoken with the same authority that you're about to hear me, God, speak it with. So when he starts this, verse 21, it says, You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says to his brother, you fool or you worthless person, you'll be liable to the hell fire. So he's essentially saying, look, most of you are comfortable living with that low-grade anger towards somebody in your life. And you've justified it by saying, well, at least I haven't taken their life or murdered them. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to reflect the value system in the Beatitudes, you're going to have to back that truck way up because that's not the standard for the citizens of the kingdom of God. It's not, congratulations, you've never taken someone's life. The standard is now, do you have any anger towards another human being who was made in the image of God? So if you're, here's how far I want you to go with this. If you are in church and you're offering a gift, this is verse 23, at the altar, and there, at that moment, you remember your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. 
and then come back and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to him with court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the garden you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've had the last penny paid. Do not get to a place as the people of God where you have to have ungodly people in ungodly courts settle issues between two believers. Because their value system is not our value system and we should, according to the word of God, be able to reconcile and figure things out here before we bring some ungodly outside influence into our debate. Because once that happens, they're going to enact punishments on you that will not leave until the last penny is paid. Let's go deeper, all right? We're not just talking about anger, let's talk about lust. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. Congratulations, you haven't slept with somebody else's spouse. But I say to you that, uh, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. As the people of God, if you think that actually having an affair is the line you don't cross, but your internet browser history and what you do in your mind where no one knows is untouched by the kingdom of God, you have only lied to yourself. Because if that's the standard, we're not talking about the citizenship of heaven. If we're talking about the citizenship of heaven, we're talking about backing that standard all the way back up into checking your heart and your mind because if you do that, guess what? You're never gonna get to the line of crossing into adultery because you're keeping your heart and your mind pure. This is what he's saying. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body and be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body going to hell. Is he actually talking about cutting off your hand and your eye? No, what he's talking about there is the biblical principle of making the difficult decisions in this world that need to be made in order for the eternal spiritual decisions to actually take root in your life. So if your issue is pornography, then you should seriously consider getting rid of your smartphone. Get a dumb phone. Remember flip phones? Remember when they couldn't surf the internet? That was probably one of the greatest things that ever happened when we got mobile, is the ability for you to be able to make calls but not spend your free time fantasizing about things that would corrupt your inner man. So even if it's painful, even if it's related to your job, would you rather have to go find another job or would you rather spend the rest of your life in hell because you just couldn't say no to the things of this world? That's the kind of cutting off of your hand or gouging out your eye he's talking about. Take courage to do the things that are the hardest things to do right here, right now in this world because they will pay dividends in eternity. Let's talk about divorce. It was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. Now what happened at this period of time is that if a husband wanted to have another sexual partner with somebody that was not his wife, all he had to do was give her some legal certificate of divorce. He's now no longer married and he is free to go marry whoever he wants. This in the first century in this culture is how folks were able to get around the adultery thing. Well, I wasn't technically married. Well, why did you divorce her? Uh, it says here, um, she burned toast. Literally, I kid you not, that was a divorceable offense in the first century. Women had no rights at this time. So if a husband wanted to get out of the divorce, all he had to do was just cite a reason. Didn't matter what the reason was. If his heart was stirred for someone else, he's gotta get out of this commitment and go somewhere else. Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual morality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery too. The standard for the kingdom of God for people who call themselves believers, it's not I legally have a reason for divorce. 
No, it's backed all the way up and it says, I'm doing the hardest possible work right now to search the deepest parts of who I am, to come to terms and say, is this really what needs to happen? Is there some reconciliation that can take place on this behalf so that I'm not moving the truck so far forward and making this the line? He said, oh, I've, I've heard it said, this is the line, but he says, back that up because the definition of marriage is for a lifetime. And if you need to get out of that for anything other than sexual immorality or what Paul says in the New Testament, if, if two non-believers marry and then one gets married later, try to live peaceably. But if you can't, then go your separate ways and get a divorce that's not considered sin out of those two specific things that we're told are allotted within the context of marriage. But even really having that conversation, should we even need to? walk into marriage soberly so that, so that the divorce word never comes up. And I understand, I told you, I, I warned you, when we started this, this is gonna be very testy. Nope. That this is one of those things that's gonna be very, very sensitive. Because there are a lot of folks in here who have gone through the process of divorce. You have been byproducts of it. Your family, you watched your mom and dad divorce. And because of who you are now, you've experienced that. You know how dangerous and how, how personal this. Some of you are contemplating working through this right now. I know where we sit on this, but I'm not talking for my authority. I'm talking about what Jesus says. This is what he says when it comes to divorce. So when you back that truck up, where does it leave you not on your own thoughts, but what he says about it. I, I don't need to spend the time reminding everybody there's full of grace. If you've been through that, if you've gone through a divorce, look, there's no condemnation. I'm not throwing condemnation on you. I'm telling you that what Jesus has called all of us to is a standard that far exceeds anything that you could possibly imagine is our standard for the way that we're supposed to live. And that comes back down to divorce too. And he goes even worse, o oaths, verse 33. Again, you've heard it said that of the days of old, shall not, you, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I said to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is by the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem. Don't swear by the things of this earth. Don't swear to God. Here's what you do. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be this, yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Oof. That's not the standard we're living. The standard we're living is, I, I've got to convince you that I'm telling the truth. No, no, trust me, trust me, trust me. I swear, I swear, I swear. Do you know why we have to do that? Because we're so corrupt that our word doesn't mean anything anymore. That's the whole reason why you need witnesses. Because your character can't stand up to the accusations. God is a God of yes and amen. And when he makes a promise, he always keeps it. And he expects his children to follow suit. If you're going to say something, do it. And if you can't, don't do it in the first place. Retaliation. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Get revenge. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So uh, does that mean I cannot get revenge or I, I can? What does that mean? That means for the people of God, we're not working on retaliation. That means those little conversations that you're having in your head after work on the ride home, that's a bad sign. You know what I'm talking about? Like there's a guy at work and you're like, just, man, there's so many things I want to say to that dude. Next time he says this, I'm going to, and you start rehearsing the conversations in your head. And he says this, I'm going to say that. No, that's stupid. I'm going to say that. I'm going to say something else. That's a bad sign. 
If you're at that place, no, 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 you need to stop trying to think through what the next thing you're gonna say is so you're smart and you're witty and you have some retaliation and you need to break to your knees and you become familiar with weeping. Because if you're spending your free time and your mind not worshiping the Lord Almighty and his sovereignty, but trying to figure out how you can get the upper hand on your fellow man, you're in the wrong place. You need to turn and get on your face and you need to repent from that and ask the Lord to do some work because I promise there's not one clever thing that you're gonna say that's gonna change that relationship, but there is a God on high who will change that relationship. Verse 43, you've heard it said, love your enemies. You've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you would love those who love you, what reward do you have? What different are you? What, what, how are you any different than the world if you're only loving the people who love you back? Don't even the tax collectors do the same thing? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? That's huge, man. That walks itself out in the context of church, doesn't it? Don't even Gentiles do the same? Don't non-believers only greet the people they know? When you show up on Sunday and you, you, you immediately cling to the, 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 the small groups of people that you know and you don't reach out and meet the other people who are part of your family, don't non-believers do that? Aren't believers supposed to be different? That's the reason why as soon as worship is over and it's time for the word to go forth, one of my favorite times of service is just stand here. Me and Lyle were talking about this before the service. Um, we're just kind of standing here just watching you guys all mill about and talk. And uh, like I could do that all day because you don't find that in most churches. Most churches, it's this forced, all right, uh, anybody new, stand up. We're all gonna bring them a packet. No, if you're new, somebody's gonna meet you and somebody's gonna know because there's all these conversations that are being had. There's genuine joy in the room because we are people who like being here with each other. But if you only go to your friends, if you're only like that with your friends, how are you any different than the world? You gotta love folks in other churches. You gotta pray for other churches. When you see somebody in church that you're not familiar with, go up and introduce yourself. And there's clever ways to do it so you don't look weird, right? Because, well, I've been going here for two years. You just go up and you lead with, I'm really bad with names and faces. Have we met? What is your name one more time? And then if it's like the fifth time, seriously, just write it down. Like, come on, <laughs> write it down. But remember people's names. That's important. I know it's hard, but you don't get a pass just because, well, I'm not good at it. I can't remember people's names. Then figure out a way around it. Because this is a hallmark of who we are. We're the people of God. We love meeting new people and we love saying each other's names because that shows I've done the work of remembering who you are. And this is how I want to finish today. I just want to read this last verse. After all of this, this entire chapter of really, really hard language, Jesus says, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now naturally, our attention goes to that word perfect. All right, well, how am I supposed to be perfect like he's perfect? Well, that word perfect in Greek is uh, teleos. And it means perfect, but it also means more than that. It doesn't just mean perfect, like I haven't made any mistakes. Perfect means fully mature and complete. So the goal is proper response to what was sacrificed and done to you is to live in a way that is fully mature and complete, not lacking or immature in anything. Essentially what Jesus is saying is it's time to be fully grown and stop acting like a bunch of children who are fighting over toys in the sandbox. That's what the world does and that's not what we do. We don't go back on our commitments we don't argue about what's right. We don't argue about what's wrong. We don't point fingers and blame. We look at how we can serve others and point them to Jesus. 
That is what he's telling us to do. That is what full maturity looks like. So today, what I want us to do as we close is spend a little bit of time this week coming before the Lord and saying, God, I've spent a lot of time praying to examine the world around me, but I'm starting to understand that that's not where the issue lies. The issue lies within me. So God, examine me, expose me, and change me. Amen? All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.